We're back, baby. And that means that there's only two weeks left now until the start of the NFL. This is the Play Sheet Podcast. My name's Charles. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Joe. Love the intro there, Charles. It's great to be back. So happy to be back. Let's get into it. I'm pumped. I'm just so excited that, and look, we're going to get into this and we're going to talk about this. Camp, I don't follow it that closely or preseason matches. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on there. There's a lot of beat reporters reporting on things that are either hearsay or the flash of one play that they see. I don't take a great deal of stock in it, but so starved have I been of NFL that I'll just soak up any content that's out there at the moment. Dude, I was so starved that I watched the Hall of Fame Browns versus Jets game. Quarterbacks <laughs> in that game were Kellen Mond and Zach Wilson. It was it was abysmal, but it was kind of NFL football after how many months it's been since Super Bowl. So I was lapping it up. So when the real stuff starts in a couple of weeks, boy, cannot wait. There you go. That's commitment. Well, Joe, let's not waste any time. We've been itching to talk about NFL again. We'll try and tear away the stories that are broken over the summer and the little bits and pieces that maybe you can take from from camp let's start off with arguably one of the kind of hottest topics at the moment which is the value of the running back position we've seen a lot of complaints and grumbles from running backs recently we've seen quite a few arguably marquee running backs move for not as much as you would suspect they'd get in terms of salary what's going on out there at the moment joe and and what does this mean for players finance and nfl my two loves combined uh <laughs> so yes yeah, so i look um it's a tough time out there if you're a running back. The market just isn't there for the contracts right now. Marquee names. We're saying big names. We're talking your Dalvin Kurtz, Zeke Elliott's. Okay, maybe Zeke kind of peaked a couple of years ago, perhaps. But, uh, you know, Austin Eckler, even Derek Henry's weighed in. Christian McCaffrey's weighed in. There's now, it seems, a running back union that has no power whatsoever. These are guys carrying the ball a lot. They probably touch the ball the second most after the quarterback and basically they're the lowest paid players by average on the offense. Is it right? Is it fair? Well, let's discuss. Do you have an overall view on this, Chaz? Do you have a kind of gut feeling kind of going into this? I suspect we're probably going to be on a similar page here because we've we've had topics that are similar to this in the past, which is don't overpay your running backs, right? In terms of fairness, listen, there's two things going on here for me. One, I think that the running back position isn't a position that's played in isolation. The success of the running back isn't entirely on the shoulders of that one individual player. There's an offensive line involved there, and they have a massive impact on creating holes for these running backs to run through. So essentially, when you're paying a running back, you there's no point paying a really, really good running back if you've got a crappy O-line. So you've got to pay two sets of players there. The only thing I will say, though, is that they do take the biggest punishment. And whilst you may argue that their skill set isn't as technical as, say, a quarterback or another skill position, they take a beating and, and do they deserve some financial remuneration for the 
on average, shorter careers they have compared to other positions. I want to take a different slant on it. I don't really think so much it's necessarily a thing if you need the O-line or the O-line are doing good things. It's a supply and demand issue here, I think. And the fact of the matter is, as good as Dalvin Cook was, for the money he wanted, the Vikings felt they could just put Alexander Mattison in, and sure, he may not be quite as good, but the increments are not enough to justify paying the excess wage. Same with the Cowboys. You know, Zeke was getting paid what Zeke was getting paid, but as soon as the contract came to an end, they thought, well, we've got what we got with Tony Pollard. And so rather than pay Zeke, we'll just go with Pollard. And so there's always someone waiting in the wings who uh, may be roughly as good. Uh, sure, they may not do as many kind of showstopper Hollywood runs, perhaps, but they're going to do the job. And the incremental money you have to pay for your Christian McCaffrey's, your Alvin Kamara's, the two guys earning the most of the position, uh, why pay that when the guy who's going to be making half, even less than half of that, is going to do 95% of that job? I think it's just down to that, supply and demand. There's enough people coming through who can do a similar-ish job. The fairness point, though, the fairness point, and I think Austin Eckler raised this most eloquently, he's looking around the practice squad, and he's seeing third-string wide receivers who, we're talking about supply and demand here. There's got to be enough guys who could probably fill a third-string wide receiver role who are basically, you know, a fourth probably on the quarterback's progression, maybe even fifth if he's looking at a running back before he's going to his third wide receiver. Guys who aren't touching that ball very much through the game, those guys are getting paid more than running backs. And I feel that although what is happening to running backs makes sense financially building a team, I think that something similar should probably happen in other positions as well. And you shouldn't get third-string wide receivers making more of running backs. Should running backs be paid more? No, I don't think so. I'd argue probably third-string wide receivers should probably be paid less. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. In terms of running backs that we have seen take the big bag in the past, is there an additional skill set, do you think, that helps set up a running back to get paid better. So is a passing running back going to have more success in terms of, of getting the back? Is a blocking runner going to be more valuable to a team? Is there is there an additional skill that you think running backs could work on that make them more valuable to teams and potentially a little bit more indispensable in that sense? That's a great question, a really, really good question. I think you have to look at what's happened in the history of just halfbacks in general and fullbacks. Now, fullback used to be a position every team carried. It used to be, you know, so important when this was more of a run first league. You go back, you know, as recently as the 80s and every one of the teams, when there wasn't 32 teams back in the 80s, it was pre-expansion, but of the 28, 30 teams that were around then, every single one of them would have had a fullback on the roster. The fullback position basically died a death when the throw first philosophy came in in the early 90s. And now probably less than half of the NFL teams will carry a bona fide fullback. Uh, you know, the Vikings do, the Patriots have, the Ravens do, but <clears throat> not every team will. Fullbacks were basically very limited in their skill set. They could block, they could carry the ball. You'd rarely see fullbacks catching passes out of the backfield. 
that led to the kind of evolution of what you'd have in the backfield with just going with the kind of running back style, the halfback, who could catch passes. Now, not every running back we see does that. You know, you go back kind of recently, Adrian Peterson, for example, he would still be run first. Derek Henry still run first, those type of players. But you've got more players like your, your Christian McCaffrey's, those kind of guys catching it out of the backfield. I feel the next evolution now is not just being a running back who can catch. It's a running back who can line up, um, you know, at the line of scrimmage and play in the slot, even go and play out wide. And, you know, being that kind of hybrid running back wide receiver, I think that's the future of a position now. If you're in college and you're an athlete, you're 220 pounds, six foot three. And you're thinking, what am I going to do myself? How am I going to monetize myself to make the most in professional sports if that's what I'm really going to do in my life? You need to be able to run routes. I, I, I really think that that's it. Now, sure, you may not have blistering pace to be an all-out wide receiver. You may not have the bulk and size to be a tight end. But if you can play running back position, line up in the slot, then I think that you can you know, start to demand a contract a little bit more than what the guys are seeing right now. And you know, people called him mad at the time. But this is what Levin Bell was saying, when did he hold out? Was it four years ago now? That famous summer where basically he said that he should be paid like a running back and a wide receiver too. People kind of laughed at him then, but he was onto something and that I think is the future. So let's talk about the impact of franchise tags and what that's done to the running back market and how that's affected them and, and maybe even the fairness of the franchise tag. Well, the franchise tag is a product of what the salaries have been recently. So you basically calculate the franchise tag. It's it's complicated. I try to do this kind of independently pre-show. And the data you need is actually on salary data, which isn't the same as cap hit, which isn't the same as cash out. The salary data is actually quite hard to get hold of. But it's basically the average of a running back position salaries divided by the average salary cap of all teams over the last five years multiplied on the salary cap this year and that's how you eventually get the franchise tag for the exclusive tag which is what we're kind of talking about here because it's mainly exclusive tags that these players have been tagged with now the franchise tag if you go back to 2015 a franchise tag running back would be on for 10.9 million and that's when the salary cap overall was about 155 million. So, you know, very roughly speaking, a franchise tag for a running back would be about 6% of the overall cap here. Now, the salary tag now, using the same mathematical formula, has actually gone down. So where it was 10.9 back in 2015, it's about 10, 10.1 in 2023. Meanwhile, the salary cap for the rest of the team has gone up to 224 million. So that 10 million is now a far lower proportion of what the overall salary space is for the team. So 10 million of 224, I mean, that's less than 5%. It's probably around about 4%, quick maths, something like that. So that in itself is an indication the importance of a position has gone down. Meanwhile, you look at other positions around the team. Running back, like I said, it's gone down by 9% since 2015 for a um, franchise tag player. Wide receiver, meanwhile, that was... Roughly 12.7 million, I think, in 2015. It's gone up to 19.3 million this year. That's increased by 55 odd percent. Wide receiver has basically moved in line with what the salary cap has. So it's just been left behind. But, uh, you know, this is the modern game now. It just seems to be not a cartel, not a unified 
agreement because that would obviously be illegal and the NFL Players Association would absolutely take the owners to court on it. But it just seems to be a general unspoken rule right now that the owners are just not going to be putting money into the running back position. The franchise tag, does it help? Does it hinder running backs? I mean, you sign one and basically you have to have at least 120% of that the year after. So if you're going to stay with a team, if that team needs you, if you're an integral part of that team, then you could be setting yourself up for the future. Chances are, though, you sign that tag once and you're going to get cut next year anyway. So, you know, it's it's really tough. Would I want to be a running back in today's market? Well, probably, yeah, because they're still making, you know, 10.1 million on the tag, but <laughs> probably much rather be a wide receiver. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And... Look, it's funny that you mentioned Le'Veon Bell, but do you think we're going to start to see a few more holdouts from running backs over this? There's just no leverage there, Charles. When you see players like Dalvin Cook, Ezekiel Elliott, Kareem Hunt, Josh Jacobs, all just basically being tagged by their team, the team saying, look, we'll pay the tag and that's it. Then what leverage do you have? If you're Dobbins, who you know doesn't have a strongest CV behind him, what are you going to do? The Ravens will say, fine, don't sign with us. We gave you what we felt was a generous offer for the supply and demand market out there. But we've got this fifth round rookie out of Tulane who will just, you know, run into the ground for the next two years and then go and pick up another one. And that's the mentality. And, and, and that's why it's kind of so hard right now if you're running back, because what are you going to do? Well, it is an interesting one. I think you're right. I think that passing backs are perhaps valued slightly higher than the old school hard-nosed fullbacks. I think we're going to see that those running backs that, that have that skill maybe have a little bit more longevity. Maybe their teams are, are prepared to pay a little bit more for them. But look, as we've said time and time again, no running back has ever put the Super Bowl on their shoulders and taken their team to glory. You know, no Derek Henry's done that. No superstar has gone... I'm going to take over the show here. It's Barry Sanders, Adrian yeah. Peterson, all of these, you know, greats of the game, especially over the last 20 years as well. Like you say, Derek Henry never even played in Super Bowl. Christian McCaffrey, I mean, he's been to Super Bowl. Has he got a ring? No. The teams that win Super Bowl don't pay running backs. We say this probably about once a week, but it's just fact. The final thing I just want to add, Charles, and I don't know your view on this, is that. The only side thing to this is I mentioned players like Barry Sanders there. I think if you ask a lot of NFL fans, particularly older fans, you know, guys who are 50s plus, but people who talk about their favorite players will often talk starry-eyed about running backs. You know, a lot of people say that the best player they ever saw was Barry Sanders. A lot of people say that, not just Lions fans. He, uh, he, he, he was so electric back in the day, people enjoyed watching him. People will say it about, you know... Gail Sayers, about Walter Payton. Uh, running back is is a position that gives a lot of people a lot of memories. And is that something that the league is going to miss? Is that something that's going to alienate people where you're just not really getting that value put on it? You're, you're, you're not really getting those, those athletes play the position, A, in that way, or B, going into the league because they can make more money playing, I don't know, basketball or whatever else. Is the league going to be weaker going forward for not having these plays around. But do, do we think that that is because the way the game has changed? Because do people look back at, at Barry Sanders and, and go, oh, electric, incredible? Because 
the whole style of NFL 40 years ago and, and further, it was different. You know, it was run heavy. It was smash them into the ground. It was, you know, that kind of smash mouth, hard nose kind of play. And now instead, people are going, bloody hell, look at Mahomes, look at Julio Jones, look at the the game has evolved and we're marveling over a different skill set. I, I don't know if it necessarily makes the NFL worse not having players like that around anymore, if that were to be the case. I think it's just that the game values a different type of player and we're seeing electric players in that zone where maybe there weren't quite as many of those types of players back in the day. I'm not sure about that. I, I mean, on this show, now this is, we're in the fourth year of the show now, but since we've been doing the show, we've talked about, you know, Derek Henry stiff arms. That was a whole kind of episode once where we were just waxing about the stiff arms that he was doing. Look at Beastquake, which was in the last decade, I believe, you know, People still get excited about that running back who just clears a path, freight train going, buckle up. People get excited about that still. And I think that's a timeless, any era kind of thing. Okay, let's move on to some of the teams more specifically then. And let's take just a quick look at joint practices because I don't know about you, but this is starting to feel a bit like wwe at the moment there have been all sorts of things kicking off in joint practices i mean look we see you know fights break out every year between some teams and and things get feisty and a lot of players in these practices or certainly pre-season games they're not your first stringers they're fighting for a spot tensions are high but this year as well we've had cancelled practices we've had cancelled pre-season games like What's going on, Joe? It's a madness. Well, we're probably in peak joint practices right now. For some of the newer fans of the game, it may surprise you, but it hasn't always been like this. There's 27 joint practices that have been held this year. Sorry, 27 teams holding joint practices this year. Last year, it was 23. The year before that, it was less. So it's becoming more and more prevalent in the league. It's dangerous, though, Charles. It's dangerous. And you're right, there's been fights. And it's been, well, one of the more higher-profile fights uh, out there was between your Packers and the Patriots. A huge, big bust-up 40 minutes before their preseason game because basically they had their practice, two practice sessions in the week, then played a preseason game. There'd been a lot of niggle, let's call it niggle, in the uh, practice sessions that they have. 40 minutes before the game, they started to all have a bit of beef on the uh, midway line. I'm not sure what it was all about, but then things climaxed with a knee to the head of, of Isaiah Bolden, cornerback uh, of the uh, Patriots in the f uh, end of the third quarter. They didn't even play the fourth quarter. I think both coaches just thought better of it. Things had got a little bit too spicy out there, so they just moved on, called the game. Join practice, Charles. Look, I'm going to give my piece on it why I think they're a bad idea, why I think they're dangerous. Challenge if you want. But look, if you're a fifth or sixth string cornerback, you are competing extremely, extremely hard for a life-changing spot on an NFL team. Now, the teams are holding 90 players right now. They've got to cut it down to 54. We all love cut day. That's going to be an episode in a few weeks' time. Cut days, you know, one of our favorite times of the year. But it's not for a lot of a, a lot of players out there. Now, there's not 54 spots that are on that team. The starts from last year are still going to be playing again. If you're the, you know, if you're the Packers, for example, Jordan Love is on that team. Jones is on that team. Bactari is on that team. There's not 54 spots up for grabs. In all honesty, the first, second, and third tiers are probably set. So, uh, realistically, at most, at most, you're fighting out for say 
10 to 15 spots. And so that means 40 positions are set, which means it's 50 players basically fighting over 10 to 15 spots. And, and it's not even that really, because if it's a cornerback, it could be that four or five of those spots are taken and there's only one. And there's maybe, you know, three or four players fighting over one spot. So you have to be able to make yourself shine. You have to be able to show something. Now, if you're in a, a single solo team practice, you can't go out there and hurt one of your teammates. You'd be, you know, inconsiderate, you'd be dangerous, you'd be a loose cannon, you'd be not a team player. No one would want you on that team. You may get cut then and there, and that happens often. Guys get too carried away in training camp, get too, you know, feisty, go and hurt someone, they're cut, that's it. You're a car salesman, game's over. But if you're doing joint practice against the Patriots and you're that, you know, player in the Packers team, edge of the roster may not make it really need to make a name for yourself and you go and smash one of the Patriots players well you haven't hurt one of your own teammates you might get a little kind of tap on the wrist on the field because hey we're we're all just practicing here we don't want to hurt each other blah 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 but you've not hurt teammates you've not done anything against your team and you can make a bit of a name for yourself doing that joint practice sessions are almost just bait for these outsiders to try and do something a little bit silly. I feel that's what drives a lot of these fights. I feel that's what leads to these bust-ups. And I think that, you know, when you're getting players getting con- getting uh, concussion because things are getting taken too far, like I said, it's dangerous. And I think a lot of coaches are starting to see this and think better of it. And there's a bit of a backlash. I'm not sure if we see as many joint practices next year. I just don't understand what, what the value is in a joint practice. Because, so uh, this kind of goes back a little bit to what I was talking about in terms of like how much stock do I put in watching joint practice or preseason games? Like a lot of players there, as you as you establish, you know, probably the first three sets, the first three strings of the team are, are set. So there's a lot of players that are just trying new stuff out, right? They're just they're not necessarily playing at their top level. They're like, okay, let's see if I can add this to to my kit bag. Let's see if I can do something a little bit different here. And sometimes it works and it looks awesome and some beat reporter will go, this person's looking amazing out of camp. Other times it falls flat on the face and everyone's going, oh, you know, I mean, God, do you remember Chase? Oh. Jamar Chase in his rookie season and everyone was like, he can't catch a ball. He's done. And then he goes on to we have like, even We even said it on this show. We, yeah. we, we perhaps read a little bit too much into that and uh, we were fooled by that as well. Yeah, hands up there. Exactly, exactly. And so like, I've, I feel like once burnt, you know? And, and so when you add another team into the mix of that, for what? It, well, like, what value is that adding? Because it's not like you're suddenly going, oh, okay, there's another team here. I'm going to stop developing or i'm going to stop trying new things i I don't know i just don't i don't see the value in it for me personally i think you'd get more out of practicing with your own team where you can try stuff out where you have the freedom and the kind of safety of knowing the players and things like that without getting another team involved personally look i don't necessarily disagree with you the logic behind it is basically in joint practices, you can get your starters and say second string out against 
arguably starters from the other team. So you can have almost a little bit of live practice, but in a non-game situation. So you can take Jordan Love and see how he's going to throw passes, you know, against the starting cornerbacks for the Patriots. No one's going at 100% pace. Everyone's going 70 80% pace. But you're seeing starters against starters and in a kind of competitive world a little bit. And that's why, and that's why now in preseason games, you just don't see starters at all. You zip back five years ago and preseason weeks one and two, you'd maybe have maybe a half from your first string, at, at least a half there. Just get them out there, get them playing, get them in a live game situation. Most teams now, you don't see those first stringers at all in no. the first three weeks. Like, like, you know, Cousins hasn't thrown a single pass. He won't. That's me watching the Vikings games, but it's just it's like that across the league. Dak Prescott hasn't thrown a pass. I don't think Jordan loves throwing a pass in preseason for the Packers. So you're just not seeing the starters whatsoever. And I think that is something that makes a lot of the kind of starters quite happy. They don't like playing preseason games. They don't like it at all. It's stress and hassle they don't want to be part of. So it sits well with them. But look... I don't think there's going to be as many teams doing this. It's it's here to stay relatively for a while. It's not going to go back down to zero from 27 teams doing it this year. But um, will there be 20 teams doing it next year? I think that's about where the over-under is going to be. <laughs> Already thinking in terms of over-unders, Joe. I love it. <laughs> Already. <laughs> right. Let's just spend the last couple of minutes talking about uh, three smaller stories that's cropped up out of preseason. Let's start with Quan Alexander and the hit he put on Chase Edmonds. Yeah, Quan Alexander, linebacker for the Steelers, basically put a hit on Chase Edmonds and was penalised for it, 44K. I think to most fans, definitely most casual fans, it didn't look like there was much wrong with it. If you were going to penalise it and you had to just look at that play raw and kind of penalise it on the basis of last season, you'd be like, was it a defenceless receiver? Chase uh, Edmonds had caught the ball out of the backfield. He turned around. He had full possession and then he was hit. That would be a very, very harsh call if it was that. The reason he was picked up, Quan Alexander, was basically because he allegedly led with a helmet. Now, the impact of his helmet was in the chest area of Chase Edmonds. But because there was incidental contact between the top of his helmet and the mouth guard of Chase Edmonds, it's not where he hit him, it's just kind of where the helmet rolled to, he took the fine. And I mean, this is something that I think we have to watch out for this season because this is something that the refs are going to have a bee in their bonnet about. There's always something going into week one, week two, week three, week four, where the refs are pinging people and it looks like bad calls. We're probably going to see this a lot. Look out for, especially linebackers, because they're going to be the first, you know, the first guard for all of us. But helmets making contact anywhere above the kind of shoulder line, even if that's not where the helmet initially hits or where the point of contact is, there's going to be a lot of penalties pinged up on that. Just want to warn you about, because we seem to always be talking about bad calls in the first few weeks, and it will take a bit of time for the refs to sell and get this one right. Uh, yeah, I don't love that as a rule. Look, yeah, I, I think we're all in favour of player safety. Absolutely. <laughs> but I think the moment that you kind of, you take incidental actions as, well, it's not like they're labelling them as malicious, essentially, but they're penalising something which you almost can't really affect or stop. That just feels like a slippery slope to me. But I think, as you mentioned, look, I think week four is generous. 
with these types of calls, we normally see flags flying through the air for the first two weeks, but it tends to kind of die down a little bit after that, doesn't it? Like the rest kind of just sort of level out by week four, I, I tend to think. <gasps> Hopefully, because what we go back a couple of years ago, and it was that um, roughing the quarterback kind of call. <laughs> yeah, that was where so bad it, to begin who, with. Who was it? Was it Clay Matthews who had got done for? It was what it like? yeah, yeah. Like, like I think it was actually on Cousins where he did it. Where basically everyone thought that it's not roughing the passer, but it was roughing the passer by the new rules. It's gonna be like this. So we'll put that play on our Twitter. Be interesting to see what listeners think. Be interesting to see what you think of this one as well. Chaz, I'll speak to you about it later. But yeah, look, uh, let's watch out for where that contact is from a tackler's helmet. Next topic, Charles. We touched on the RB market earlier and we were talking about holdouts. One player who is holding out right now, Josh Jacobs. I think he's probably the biggest holdout to really talk about. He hasn't signed his franchise tag tender yet. He hasn't gone to training camp. We're a couple of weeks away from a season starting. Will Josh Jacobs be part of the uh, Raiders setup at the start of the year? Or are they going to have to go with someone like Zamir White to start the season? Yeah, it's a weird one because I, I suppose in my head, I don't really see what Josh is hoping to get out of this. I mean, it's the Raiders certainly don't look like they're in necessarily a great shape this year. I kind of feel like I say that every year and maybe... This is my Raiders bias, which I like to say is not real. Uh, <laughs> factoring <laughs> in here. But um, what? Is he going to be there next year? Probably not, because as we pointed out, uh, look, Raiders might do something crazy. They draft crazy. But it would be crazy to like really give Josh Jacobs the bag when there's so many other areas of that team that need reinforcing. So what's he hoping for with this holdout? I just, I don't get it. Maybe he just feels that with Derek Carr having gone, Jimmy G coming in, needing to learn the offense there, needing to kind of pick things up, that kind of continuity of him being around would be helpful. I guess perhaps maybe that. It's hard to be basically going in with a new quarterback and a new running back uh, and not having that kind of established leadership there. But I mean, look, you're right. He doesn't have leverage. Running backs don't have leverage. It's the way things are right now. If I, <laughs> He's not going to get a better deal. As we've said here, he's not going to get a better deal. He's best off signing that 10.1 million franchise tag. If he's still around next year, if he plays out of his skin, that will at least be 20% more. He'll he'll be you know playing for around 13 million. But I think he needs to sign it pretty quickly and get to camp because I've said it's two weeks to start of the season and he's not been on a practice field. And then, Joe, we're ending on a very sad bit of news. The 24-game win streak, preseason win streak for the Ravens finally comes to an end. Yeah, one of the most ridiculous streaks, I feel, in the um, NFL. It's the biggest kind of who cares streak, because if you're winning preseason games, who cares? (laughs) Like, really, who cares? But yeah, the uh, Undertaker-esque preseason streak was beaten by, you know, everyone must agree that uh, the Washington Commanders are the Brock Lesnar's of the NFL world, clearly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so look, I put this in the agenda to, to talk about because... Should we care? Does anyone care? Do you care? I don't think I care. But it just feels like a 24-0 streak finally getting broken. It feels like something that someone should care about. But I don't think anyone cares. I agree. I'm just going to throw this out. Just to throw the cat amongst the pigeons here, right? Every season, Ravens get, I mean, so many injuries, right? I, I feel like they're a team that is constantly, we always talk, injuries to Lamar Jackson, 
injuries to their new rookie wide receiver to their new rookie running back to about three of their running backs and part of me thinks are they going too hard in preseason is this what's happening here you know they've won 24 games on the bounce in preseason maybe a loss is a good thing maybe a lack of effort and and conserving a bit of energy might see the ravens good this year who knows maybe they go on a bit of a postseason run what are you saying but as we said, mate, it's not the starters who are playing. It's not even the second string who are playing. So it's just that they've had these, you know, immensely winning-esque uh, third and fourth stringers <laughs> for the last few seasons. But hey, the streak's over. Well, streak's over for the Ravens, but ours is only just beginning, Joe. It's episode one. Can't wait for episode two. And then we're into the meat of it. NFL starts. Cannot wait, Charles. It's going to be a great season. It's going to be a unpredictable season as ever. I'm looking forward to being there with you through it, mate. Speak next week.